Once you grab your Bibles, I turn to Romans chapter 8. And before we jump in, let's just pray. Let's just give thanks to the Lord and pray for his presence to be with us at this time. Father, we just give you praise. Just thank you for those testimonies. Thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, all that you desire to do. The lives of those people we've heard about in our lives, even this morning, Lord. Help us, I pray, to see you. Not here to just go through the motions or have service, sing some songs, hear a message. We're here to see you. We're here to behold you afresh. We're here to make your name great, to magnify you. And it's our prayer as we behold you, as 2 Corinthians says, that we would become more like you, transformed from glory to glory. We thank you that you don't leave us where we're at. You reach down to redeem and rescue until we would be carriers of your grace and your glory and your goodness. So come and have your way, I pray. As we turn to your scriptures, would you breathe life upon them Would you do, King Jesus, whatever you desire to do for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Romans 8 is where we're going. Now, if I was to ask you this morning, what is your favorite chapter in the Bible? What comes to mind? Anyone got some suggestions? There's probably a few. Psalm 23, yes. It's a good option. John 5, was it? Song of Songs 5, okay. It's different. Any other takers? Psalm 51, 91, Psalm 9. They're all good, all the Psalms. There's something 12 I heard over there. There's certainly a few candidates, isn't there? There's, there's no shortage of options. Well, if I had to pick one, I would say this would have to be right up there. If not, what I would suggest, and it's, it's a, um, a bold statement to make, but one of the greatest portions and passages of Scripture ever written. So we're going to launch into this. We're going to spend a bit of time. I'm not going to endeavor this morning to get through the whole chapter. But we've been going through this book of Romans as Paul is proclaiming the gospel, this matchless message that saves sinners, that turns the the world the right way up. It's not just good advice. It's good news. It's the proclamation of what God has done and how that changes everything for us and for all of human history. And so he's, he's outlined the essence and the heart of the gospel in the first five chapters. We've seen the last few weeks in chapters six and seven, there's kind of this separate tangent that he goes on asking this question. Well, you know, if this is, if this is really so good, God's grace given towards undeserving sinners, then why shouldn't we just continue to sin? We get the grace, he gets the glory. It sort of makes sense. And of course, he answers that question emphatically and says, no, that is is not the intention at all. How can we, who've come out of the grave, we've been resurrected to new life in Christ, why would we even want to go back and live in the midst of the rotting flesh and the grave clothes, to use that particular analogy? There is... 
new life on offer. There's a new love. There's a new lordship. There's a new allegiance. There is ultimately a new way to be human, this radical relationship that is now centered on what he has already done for us. And yet in the midst of this, we've, we've seen this tension, and this is how he finishes off. We'll pick up the scene, just a couple of verses at the end of chapter 7. So he talks about this reality, new life, new lordship, new love, and yet it's in the midst of a wrestle. So he talks about in chapter 7, this is, of course, the Apostle Paul is saying there's, there's this war that's waging against the, the law of my mind, making me captive. There's, there's this wrestle within me. Verse 24, he asks this question, and it seems a little morbid, but he will answer this emphatically also. He says, wretched man that I am. He's talking about the, the things that I want to do, I don't, things that I I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I do want to do, I don't. There's this, this wrestle and this tension going on. What, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That would be very morbid if he left it there. But he continues, he says, But thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, exclamation mark. And he's going to explain exactly why he is so emphatic in his praise. How, how wretched I was, if you like. Who, who would deliver me? Well, the good news is there is a deliverer who has come. And it's a little bit like this, and I want to give you this, this example as we jump into chapter 8, because it kind of sets the scene for where we have gone and where we're going. But I've always loved the story of a guy by the name of John of Kronstadt. He was a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest, and in the time that he lived, there was a rampant alcohol abuse. And so it was very common to see people uh, hung over, foul-smelling people in the gutter. And most people, if not all of the priests of his time, they would um, walk past these particular folk lying in the gutter and expect that, you know, if, if they were to come into the four walls of the church, they'd clean themselves up, they'd have a shower, they'd get rid of uh, the, the addictions and the issues that they had and struggled with. But it's said of him that rather than being the one who expected them to come in, compelled by love, he went out into the streets. He would cradle these people, these hungover, foul-smelling individuals in the gutter, and he would say this to them as he looked in their eyes. He would say, this is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. Don't you love that phrase? And what a wonderful picture. Not just, well, go and get yourselves out of the gutter, literally. What, what, clean, clean, what are you doing? He would gaze upon them with these eyes filled of compassionate love. And he'd say, you were made for more. This is beneath you. This is not what you were created Look at this picture. You were made for so much more than this. You were made to know love and ultimately to be vessels of his love. Now, I want you to ponder that picture because there's something that goes to the heart of the gospel and the good news and this savior that we have. He's not the God who says, well, I've done this. Therefore, you go and clean yourself up. And when you've made yourself better, you come on into the four walls of the church and I'll meet with you there. Think of this, the only human face of God ever revealed as Christ put on flesh. God put on 
flesh in the form of Christ. It is the Savior who would embrace the least. Who with eyes of love and compassion would lift up the poor and needy. He'd welcome the lepers, the unclean, the outcasts of society. He would love the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the outcast. Now, he's also the God with fire in his eyes who cleanses the temple. And he makes a whip and he drives out anything unholy. But this is the face of God as we see. And Hebrews talks about his exact reflection. He is God in human flesh, this God who steps down who embraces us and says, you were made for so much more. You were made to house the glory of God. You were made to know his love. That's where Paul's been, but it's also what he's going to unpack, as I said, in the greatest chapter arguably ever written. It's great because it reminds us of that reality. What are we now living for? Not just what we're rescued from, but what is it we see and we find in him. And let's jump in there to Romans 8 verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And the line of the word. There's no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God's done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now, keep your finger there because we're going to look at one more passage before we just unpack this. But let's reflect on that for a few moments. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for you have been set free. (laughs) Some wonderful truth in there. We could easily camp here for the whole day, which is not our mission. But let me point this out. There is no condemnation. That is a legal requirement or demand that could be made. He's saying there is no more any legal demands. He has fully paid the price. He's satisfied the legal requirements of the law. Now, we had a a few men who braved the weather yesterday, and I I think swum probably more than walked or as much as walked their way around the golf course. I saw some photos. I didn't join them for the golf, but I did for the lunch afterwards. One of my good friends, Dave, was there, and he said, Andrew, he loves, it was, the lunch was at the, the Harmony Club, he's like, you've got to get the pork knuckles. Anyone been to the Harmony? It's just like you need a whole separate plate for this thing. In fact, it morphed from a pork knuckle into then we got the whole meat platter. So he said, we're going to order this thing. It's going to be a huge meat platter. He's just walking into the building just to embarrass him. And so we were there. We'd ordered this, this feast. And I said, Dave, I'm going to pay for this one for you. And so I paid for the meal. I just wanted to mention that publicly just so we all remember and... The point being is I paid for his lunch. And so if they were then to turn around and say, well, actually, you know, here's the problem. You've paid, but he's going to eat this thing too. And he did eat a lot of it. In fact, both of us ate enough to satisfy us for the next month, I think. 
But they have no right to then say, well, you're going to eat it too, therefore you need to pay. There's, there's no legal requirement because it has been fully paid for. The, the cost, the price has been paid. Now, it's much more than a free lunch, isn't it? It's new life. It's, we were absolutely without any recourse. We were trapped. That's what, what Paul has, has, has unpacked and unfolded. And yet he has paid the price that we get to enjoy the provision that he has given for us. There's no longer any legal... Nobody can come and say, well, you know, Jesus has done that, but you probably need to just add to that a little bit. Pick up your end of the tap. You can't. It's legally been paid for. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can subtract from it. It is a done deal. So he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, again, we could camp there, but there is this picture. There's a wonderful phrase that's often said that, you know, we, we are loved to the degree that we're in Christ, not to the degree that we are like Christ. It's not, his love is not a measure of how well we have earned his love and affection this past week or this past morning or this past season. We are loved to the degree that we're in Christ. But if we are in Christ, then the other very familiar statement is true as well, that there is nothing that we can ever do to make him love us anymore. And there's nothing that we can ever do to make him love us any less. Now, I say that because it's something that I run into in my life, that I run into in other people's lives all the time. This sense of, well, I understand that he loves me, but something within me still needs to earn his affection, to earn his approval. To, well, I'm, I'm not worthy this week. In fact, I think he's probably, you know, punishing me. Not only does he not love me, but I'm now, I'm out in the doghouse because I've done, that, that's, that's not the picture of the gospel. There's no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. We're in his life. He gives us his life, his holiness, his joy, his peace. We sung about it this morning. It's the great exchange. It's not a partial down payment that we strive to. It is done, a done deal. Now that leads us to a place, and I, I labor that point for this reason. There's no condemnation. You're in Christ Jesus, verse 2, for we have been set free. There is now freedom. We are free. Well, what does that mean? I want you to jump. I said there's one more passage. Let's jump down to verse 15. I want to set up this thing of freedom. Well, what does freedom actually mean? And then next week we're going to go delve down a little bit deeper into, well, how do we actually walk and live in this freedom? What does that actually look like? But Romans 8.15, as I said, this is just an incredible passage, but this is what it says. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is not the heart of, of God's freedom, is that he gives us freedom for, for us then to be consumed by a spirit of fear and slavery. He says, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father now that's not just a, a title that's a tender description we don't really have a, a word in the English for 
for Abba, but it's a, it's a, a word of, of tenderness, of intimacy. Not that you'd, you'd call someone, well, that's my father, but if you loved your father, you'd say, well, that's my Abba. Like, it's, it's a word of tender affection. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our, children that we, uh, with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, who would be thankful if this passage was not in here, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Be nice, wouldn't it? And then you'll live a life with no suffering. That's not what it says. And we're going to go in to that in a couple of weeks' time. Well, how does this shape the way that we walk through with faith trials and difficulties and suffering? And for believers, there's a foundation and there's a fountain we drink from that is completely different than those who walk through difficult times without faith. But here's the picture of freedom. He says, there's no condemnation. You're in Christ Jesus. You have been set free. And this is what freedom looks like. It's not a spirit of slavery and fear. It's a spirit of sonship. You're free from, but you're free to be who God has created you to be, which is his children, his heirs, the one that he loves and gives everything Two. Let's unpack this a little bit, and I'm aware of the time. Don't worry, we're going to um, hopefully just get through this and then get you out for some fellowship and sausages. So bear with me. Sorry? Take as long as I like. Thank you. The other pastor has given me permission. It's calendar, is it? Is that the no watch? We just go by calendar. So let's, look at, let's talk about this notion of freedom. I want us to understand this big picture. What is freedom? And I would suggest this to us up front. Freedom is not a peripheral issue. It's not kind of a side issue. Freedom goes to the very heart and the core of the gospel. We see a God who saves and a God who sets free. That's the picture here that we we are remembering and reflecting upon as we come towards the fulfillment of the Passover. It wasn't just his provision. It was the power for them, for his people, to walk into his freedom. It's a picture of freedom. The gospel is a message of salvation and of freedom. And I think it's fascinating in the world that we live in that freedom in general is one of the great model uh, modern battlefronts. We talk about freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of expression and freedom of choice. And I'd suggest that these don't stand as Uh, isolated, self-sufficient notions of freedom, quite the opposite. They stem from this reality and notion of the human heart and the human condition. We seem to recognize, because it's all around us, that there's some kind of captivity. We're not truly free. There's this longing and this yearning for freedom. The good news is that Jesus says, I am the great liberator, and I've come to set you free, and we'll, we'll look at that. But the world says, particularly the the West, the secular humanism point of view, they say, well, freedom is some kind of an internal notion. That's that's the definition of freedom. You need to look within. You need to look to your desires. Freedom is doing whatever you'd like. I've started uh, probably a month or so ago, maybe it's a couple of months now, um, doing some exercises with my kids. The idea was to do some fitness with them. I do my own kind of working out, but they were quite keen to do some different classes. And so we happened to get a three-month trial to iFitness. 
Anyone heard of iFitness? It's a little app on your, your phone or your iPad, and it's got all this series of workouts. You can do strength training and hit training and kickboxing and all these different things. The fascinating thing is I've uh, um, not embarked as much as I should, but I have embarked on some of these workouts with my girls, and we head down the shed and put on the screen. But at the beginning of every workout, it says, well, you know, we're here to work out hard today. We've got 30 minutes to do a whatever routine it is, and we're going to do this and pick up heavy weights. And, but you just do you. You do whatever you feel like. Whatever you feel like you do. And it always kind of strikes me. I think, whatever I feel like. Well, I don't really feel like a workout. I feel like sitting on the beach with a pina colada or... The problem is, whatever I feel like doesn't really achieve the goal and the aim. The two seem to be mutually exclusive. And so we see this tension and this notion, don't we, around us, that freedom is not just doing whatever we want to do. Just ask any addict, how free are you? And they say, well, I'm not free at all because I'm completely controlled by my desires. Just follow your heart. So the problem is when our desire becomes the foundation, when there's no boundaries or external navigation points, we must be separated from the past, which is what we're just completely looking inside. If there's nothing beyond the imagining of our hearts, then everything is created and subjective. It means the outworking of freedom is nothing more than the ever-expanding assertion of our will, and all we're left with is the fleeting vapor of the momentary pleasures of our hearts. We've just got to, just got to enjoy them. We just do whatever you feel like. Well, that felt great. I imagined myself on the beach, but I actually achieved nothing in terms of what I was supposed to be doing, which was doing a workout with my kids. You see, the problem is, at best, it's this concept of freedom as this elusive vanity. At worst, it becomes the addict's prison of desire. We leave ourselves captive to the wickedness of our own heart and its insatiable desires. So what is true freedom then? Because the gospel and Jesus, who says, I've come that you might be free, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is this freedom then that Jesus is talking about? And how is it different than that notion of this internal, personally determined and derived freedom? Well, it shows us a couple of things, this picture of freedom, which is why I mention it. Number one is simply this. Freedoms are by nature always in conflict. They just are. Freedoms will always be in conflict with one another. Look at spending money versus saving money. We're about to head away on a, uh, a trip, me and my family. I had one of my girls, she proudly said the other day, and she's the saver in the family. She said, Dad, I've got over $1,000 saved for my trip. She's a little saver. She's great. Every penny goes in the bank account. One of the other girls said, Dad, I've got zero money. And in fact, I've taken out a few loans with my sisters. Therefore, I'm virtually bankrupt. But the freedom to spend and save will always be in conflict with one another. The freedom to work versus the freedom to leisure, to have a workout versus imagining yourself sitting on a bed. You you cannot do both. They are in conflict with one another. The freedom to walk one direction or another. You, You have a choice. The freedoms by nature, freedom by nature will conflict 
and be in competition with one another. So what is the greater freedom? And ultimately, what is, the true, what is true freedom? What does it look like? Well, here's the key, and this is the point, is it depends upon the intended end. What, and so you cannot actually determine freedom ever by just something internally. There's got to be some greater good that I'm heading towards. What, what is the intended end? Is it to buy a house? Well, in that case, saving is the definition because that's the, you get what I'm saying? Is it to have a holiday? In which case, spent, you know, it depends on the intended end. It depends on the external definable parameters or truth. So freedom by nature requires the cost, commitment, and sacrifice, the exercise of restraint rather than the removal of all restraint towards an intended goal. Timothy Keller has this great example. He talks about freedom, and he says, it's a bit like if you've got a fish. Now, a fish is designed to swim in the water, just in case there was any clarification required there. That's, that's what they're made for. They're made to swim in the water. Now, the fish might say, well, you know what? I've decided I'd rather um, be a land animal and be placed on the land. Well, the fish could be removed from the water and placed on the land, but that doesn't necessarily make it any freer, does it? You've removed it from water, but is that fish any freer than being in the water? The answer is not. It's not more free. It's less free because it cannot honor the reality of its nature. And so he defines freedom as this. It's not so much the absence of restrictions, but finding the right ones. It's not doing whatever we want. It's the the cost, commitment, sacrifice, and exercise of restraint towards the intended goal. We could phrase it this way. It's not what we could do. It's what we were created to do. Not what we could do. It's what we should do. It's the greater good. It's the intended end. So this brings us to this picture in scriptures. I want to take us a moment to unpack about what true freedom actually is. See, biblically speaking, freedom is a gift that God gives man sovereignly and significantly. From the beginning, he gave man the capacity to defy him, to undo the created order. And of course, that's exactly what happened. It caused disruption, the harmony between God and humanity, human and other humans, and human and creation. And ever since, there's been this this subjection to futility. Romans will talk about in, in following verses. It's like there's this groaning within us in creation, knowing that something's not right. We're longing for ultimate liberation. And that's the heart of the gospel. In steps the great liberator, this story of a God who frees the powerless from captivity and oppression. That's this story here. Hopelessly lost. In steps the liberator. Through his blood, he sets the captives free. Heralds a new day where man is finally sovereign, living as he was created to live, as sons and daughters of the living God. The point is this. Freedom is the free gift of God. It's the certain and unfailing gift grounded in the truth of who he is. It's this unshakable, unmovable foundation of freedom. So why is freedom centrally important in the gospel? Why would God even allow free choice? If he knew it was going to cause and create this great tension and this great mess, 
this great liberation that would be required. What, why, why is freedom at the heart of it that we need it and that he's come to offer us and set us free? Well, it comes down to this. And we've talked as we've gone through Romans, as we've looked at the gospel, this picture of a savior who came and he bled and he died for us. What was his intended end? What was his greatest desire as Jesus offered up his life? What was his desire? Was it obedience? It's the flow one, but there's something else. Was it worship? I think we're getting a little closer. I would suggest, I think Scripture makes it clear, that his greatest desire was love. It wasn't control, wasn't obedience, wasn't service, wasn't even worship. It was love. In love, he predestined us. For God so loved, it was through love, it was for love. What does God desire and want from us? Not just our obedience and our worship. They both flow from one place. True worship flows from a place of love. You cannot force someone to love, but you can force them to obey. And so the cross stands as this ultimate symbol, not of oppression and control, but of love and freedom. So listen, this is a quote from John Piper. He says this, Freedom is seeing and savoring Christ so intensely that you are his totally. That's freedom. The more satisfied you are in Jesus, the more free you are. The more you see him, the more free you are. The more you savor him, the more free you are. The more you trust him, the more free you are. And I'd add to that, and the more his love flows through you to others, the greater his freedom is expressed in your life. Here's the picture. Freedom is first and foremost about the being than it is the doing. And we'll move to that. But it's God's great gift to move us from where we are in the gutter to where we are called to be as his sons and daughters. You were made for more than this. You were made to be free. That's not just following your desires, living entrapped. It's living in his ultimate calling and his created purpose for you giving up what we could do for what we're created to do bring the worship team back up here i just want you to put your bibles aside that's warm here isn't it it's cool before but it's warmed up i just want to conclude by just giving the lord some space. So if you want to just turn your attention to, to him, I want to pray for us, but I just want to share a, a story. This is where I want to land this morning. You know, the heart of the gospel, and in particular the heart of freedom, is this incredible picture of the great liberator who would make a way to restore and reconcile a people to himself. It's a great love story. Ernest Hemingway, he tells this true account. It's account, he was a, a preacher and a missionary. 
And this account happened in Spain many, many years ago. And as the, the story unfolds, he said there was a son who had rebelled and, true story, sinned against his father and the shame of what he'd done, the trouble that he'd caused, the dishonor to his father and his family, he ran away from home. This father who was desperate to find his son had searched all over Spain. He was a man of some wealth and means and he'd sent many of his servants out looking, trying to find this son. All of this effort that he had made had resulted in nothing. Eventually, in an act of uh, desperation, he placed an ad in the daily newspaper. And the ad simply read this, Paco, which was his son's name, meet me at the plaza, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. That was the headline. Well, this father turned up to see if anyone would respond to his ad. And on the Tuesday that he'd specified, 800 young boys, all named Paco, had come to meet their father in the plaza in front of the hotel. You see, there is this longing and this groaning in the hearts of all humanity to be reconciled. It's where it comes from. We're, we're longing and searching. We're thirsting. That's the ultimate desire that we have. It's for restoration and it's for reconciliation with the one who loved us before the foundation of the world. And that's what sin has done. It's caused this great divide. It's put this wedge between us. Till in steps the great liberator. He says, now there is a way. It's only by the blood. Not just to be freed from, but to be free for the purpose in which I've created you, which is to be mine. Would you just close your eyes? Father, we thank you that you're a God who comes not imposing your will, but offering your life. Lord, I acknowledge in, in my life and the lives of all those I see around us, this need and this longing for freedom. We're searching, but as the saying goes, we're so often looking in the wrong places. And Lord, I thank you as we've read and reflected that through your blood, through the sacrifice that you've made, you've written for all eternity an invitation upon that wooden cross for us to come home. Come home, my son. Come home, my daughter. All is forgiven. Papa. Father, I thank you that we would, in whatever ways or means this relates to us this morning, that we would see and hear your invitation and that we would come running and boldly throne of grace to experience and to live and to rejoice in the
the freedom that you've won for us as sons and daughters of the living God. I want to ask just with your heads bowed, your eyes closed this morning. Is there anyone, anyone here this morning, and it might be someone online as well, you can respond in your own way. Is there anyone here today, and you know, whatever this might mean, but you know that there is a gap, there is a, a divide, there's a separation between you and your Heavenly Father. You've become estranged, you've become distant, maybe there's an intentionality to it, you deliberately walked away, you made a decision, maybe there's just been other priorities, other things in life that's consumed your attention, your affection, and I'll belabor this just for a few moments because I believe there's an invitation this morning for you to come home. He's, he's that kind of father. As Jesus tells his story, he's that kind of father. It's a picture of a father whose son had gone, squandered his inheritance. His father had given him everything. He'd spent it on prostitutes. He'd spent it on wild living. Woken up in the pig farm covered in mud and shame. And thought, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll just be able to come home and take pity on me. Maybe I can just be a servant. As he turns towards home, there is his father. Outstretched arms. Ready, willing to embrace him. Not as he cleaned himself up, but in the midst of the mess. Picking him out of the gutter, looking at him in his face, eyes of love. This is so beneath your dignity. You're made for so much more than this. Let me put my robe upon you, a ring on your finger. Let me give you the kiss of love and welcome you home with great joy and celebration. That's your heaven. Just ask, is there anyone in that place? And you want to respond to that? Just want to pray with you. Just raise a hand. I see your hand. I can see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand. Is there anyone else? Just give it a moment longer. pray for us. I'm going to stand and finish with a song and just open up the altar. But Father, I thank you for those who are responding. Those this morning, those who've raised their hands here for others, perhaps online as well, who've indicated, yes, that's, that is me. That is me. And Lord, I thank you that it doesn't matter where they've been. It does not matter what they have done. What a joy and a delight there is in your heart as your sons and daughters that you've paid for as they turn towards you. 
And I pray this morning that each and every one of them and all of us in some deeper way would know that reality of a Father's unconditional love. Father, we join with the celebration. All the angels rejoicing as just one sinner turns towards you, drawn into your kingdom as a son. And we pray, Lord, for that reality, for those who've indicated. Lord, would you reach out? Would you embrace them? Would your blood wash them clean of their sin? And would you welcome them with great rejoicing into your kingdom, the kingdom of light this morning? We pray that in Jesus' mighty name.